Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest updates from the front line, examine the Russian army's retreat and redeployment to the east. I speak to our reporter, Danielle Sheridan, who's been on the ground in Bucha, and we answer your questions on Belarus and tank warfare. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's April 5th, day 41. And today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, and Venetia Rainey, our assistant foreign editor. Just a warning that today's episode, like yesterday's, will cover events that some listeners might find distressing. I started by asking Venetia to comment on the shifting front lines in the north and east of Ukraine. What we've seen is Russia really pulling back from the areas around Kiev. And that had that was a process that had started to happen at the end of last week, but has now been basically completed. You know, when you look at maps, there is no real Russian presence there apart from right around the border where they're defending the border into um, Belarus. And, and that is that is pretty significant. Obviously, there's been lots of reporting around what we've been seeing in the wake of the Russian retreat in towns such, such as Bucha, which we'll be talking about later, I'm sure. Um, and we're also seeing then a repositioning so that they can refocus and regroup to try and take the east, which I know we'll be talking about later as well. That's the sort of broad sweep of it. Dom? Yeah. Hi, David. Hi, Venetia. Hi, everybody. Um, it, it's, it's quiet tactically. Shelling in the east around the Donbass region. Um, Krematorsk, a town south of Izium, so towards uh, south of Kharkiv, south of Izium, towards the uh, Donbass. That's received shelling overnight. The battle for Mariupol is still still there. It's uh, it's extremely grim, um, but the Ukrainian defenders are still hanging on. Um, however, I think that will be the next the next big story after Bucha. Uh, but yes, fa- fairly quiet as Russia tries to do this this um, this mis- activity of reconstitution which uh, which we'll talk about in a moment so can we yeah can we focus on this so they venetia as you said they've pulled pulled away from kiev what are they there's so many questions are there to what extent has this been an orderly retreat um do we know when they can fight again and what are they fighting for now or do we have a sense of what their new goals are 
I think it's been part retreat, part pushback. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to know sort of what combination it was of each in those areas. But we've seen the Ukrainians go on the offensive. But also clearly Russia has made a decision to pull out those troops. They haven't been making any progress. You know, we've spoken lots of times on this spaces about how the convoy is stalled. Um, everyone's probably very bored of hearing about that. Well, now the convoy has completely disappeared and we've seen pictures of the convoy, you know, blown up set on fire just completely um just completely destroyed in some of these villages such as butcher russia has clearly decided that the losses were not worth it and that what it's going to focus on now is the east to be clear russia has said from the beginning that its special military operation and i'm doing air quotes here was always focused on the east we know that wasn't true but now it is genuinely just going to focus on the east as a chunk that it feels more able to bite off, um, given its lack of success around the capital, um, and what that will mean, what that will mean is pretty much the sort of next phase of the war, which in some ways could be could be worse. I know that's hard to say, given how bad it has been already, but the fighting will be heavier. Um, Ukraine will be even more outmatched. It doesn't have quite the right heavy weaponry that it needs for this phase of the war. Don will be able to talk more about this. Um, but we've already seen Russia making some advances in that area. So Don mentioned Izium. Um, the Russians have taken that. And they're now heading down towards these towns of Popazna and Rubizhne, um, all with the aim of cutting off the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians in the Donbass region and trying to really isolate that chunk and, uh, and, and conquer it. So that's what they'll be focusing on. That's what we'll be focusing on now. And if I could just, if I just will pick it up from there, um, David. So, so as Vanish says, to, so they will focus on the Donbass. But what that means is it's not a seamless, right, we finished with Kiev and the north, we're going to uh, swing around, swing around to the east and we're going to come piling in over the border and down and, and cut off the, the Donbass. I mean, first of all, the, the distances are just immense, um, which they should have factored in in the first place, but they seemingly did not do. But also what what's happening now is um, what the military call reconstitution. That's a sort of a doctrinal term, um, but it has a number of different components. And what it what it means is that they're going to be, first of all, they're going to be resting. They're going to be resting their, their people, their fighters, and fixing them, um, medically fixing them, those that, those that are broken. Uh, and they're going to be uh, bringing in f uh, fresh troops, you would hope, um, whether or not they are uh, equally well trained uh, is a, is a question. But the first one, the first thing to do is to is to regenerate um, your capabilities. So that's your, your your personnel and your and your kit, all the stuff that you've lost on the battlefield. You need to get some some more of probably if that if that's the the fight you want to have. You want to get some more tanks and aircrafts and air defence and, and all the rest of it. So that's kind of regeneration. And then the second part of reconstitution is that you need to, to reorganise. So you've had a look at the, the fight you're in, you've made an assessment of the enemy, and you then decide that actually just going um, you know, Yabu sucks to you straight over the top and, and driving at them at full speed is not going to work. You might need some some clever tactics or you might need to change some of your organisation. So uh, a blend, what we in the West would call combined arms, you'd have some armour and infantry and artillery and some engineers and some whatever else. So you might want to you know, literally change the organisation to put different cap badges, if you like, under under command of, of, a, of a regional commander. So that, that, that reorganisation takes time as well, because people have to physically move to, to new locations, but also get their head around what the new tactics are and how they're going to work with these 
these strange new beasts, these engineering vehicles or these helicopters or or whatever it is. So that's the reorganization. And of course, these things are happening at the same time. So you're, you're, reorganize, you're reorganizing the structures at the same time as you're trying to regenerate the capability of, of fighting um, soldiers and, and kit, uh, all at the same time of doing this massive sort of left hook, if you look at it from the Russians' point of view, left hook round to come into the Donbass. So these are not only the, the, the distances that we've, we've mentioned, but also the, the, the actual endeavour to do this as a military. I mean, th- this will take weeks. There, there will be um, efforts, some effort to push into to the Donbass, undoubtedly. But the, the, the sort of the big push, if you like, will take, will take some time to, to get going. And if, I mean, if Russia have learned anything from this fight so far is that they, they massively underestimated the Ukrainians and they need to have a proper think about how they're going to do do this fight, um, how they're going to um, constitute themselves in terms of what bits of their military force they put where, they might have to do some training. I mean, they might go back to Russia and actually go back to the training areas and and and, and practice working together. And you can't just, it's like an orchestra, you can't just shove everyone in the Albert Hall and expect them to get on with it. I mean, they, these things need training and you need to, to learn about your um, your your friends and allies before you actually then try and learn about the opposition. You, you, you do not want to be learning about how your stuff works when you're in contact with the enemy. So this effort, this reconstitution effort that Russia is currently going through at the moment is an enormous undertaking. If there is fighting in the next few days, if they just sort of go for it and just drive down through Kharkiv and through Izium and try and pile into the Donbass using weight of numbers, and I wouldn't put that past them because that's what they tried the first time, then... I think they will have a very, very tough fight because Ukraine, um, the Ukraine military there, the 10 brigades of their best trained and best equipped soldiers are are there, are waiting for them, are dug in. Um, and if those are the tactics they want to go with, then I think they'll come unstuck. The alternative, of course, is to take quite some time, and I mean weeks, to do it properly. And then you're eating into, well, the, the, the political consequences of that. So this is a really a really dodgy time now for Russia, just saying that they're going to preserve their fighting power and come back and fight another day down in the Donbass is, is all you know, fine, it's all, all well and good, but it takes a huge amount out of a military force to do that. And there is political cost in the delay. So it'd be really interesting to watch. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Can we talk a little bit about, I mean, you've touched on it and so did Venetia, but it'd be good to talk a bit about what the Ukrainian military um, are doing now. You said they're digging in. There's also... As we talked about yesterday, the, re- the discovery of some of the atrocities in the recently recaptured suburbs. I mean, that's going to that's going to spur them on and 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 make them even more determined that, than they were. W- what are the Ukrainians thinking, and and how are they preparing for the next stage of of the fight? Well, I'd be very wary about offering or suggesting what the Ukrainians are thinking from my my comfortable place back here in in London, I will allow them to, we'll try and get some more of them on actually. It was great to speak to the Ukrainian MP a couple of weeks ago. We should, we should get more voices directly from, from the ground. But I think that as there's this lull at the moment, the focus will turn to the, to the atrocities that we saw in Butcher. And we've seen a lot of pushback on that. Um, diplomats have been expelled, uh, which does, which does matter. I mean, this is, this is important, but Sweden, pushed three out, Denmark 15, Italy 30, France and Germany also pushed them out for, for spying. Um, you know, Russia said this is a very short, short-sighted move and, and said that this is the, the, the wrong thing to do at this time of, a time of crisis. 
I mean, it's as if they're talking about an oil spill when they're saying that, um, you know, further complicate our communication, which is necessary to find a solution. As if like, well, guys, you know, you started this war. This is this is crazy. So the the focus is going on to the diplomatic front. Um, there's a lot of debates now. Well, no, debates wrong. Russia have challenged the um, evidence that's been provided by Human Rights Watch and um, other platforms, um, social media, o- open source social media, for example, satellite imagery of the mass graves. They are Russia say they will present evidence this afternoon to the. UN Security Council saying that no, 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 those, those, um, when they left Butcher, there were no, there'd been no civilian atrocities. So, so we're now into the, into the, um, diplomatic maneuvering around the, the, the information war. Um, and this is why I've said, I wrote in a piece the other day, I said, we, we individually need to arm ourselves with what we consider to be the, the most likely, um, the closest version to the truth that we can that we can get, and I, as I said, I think Human Rights Watch is the is the is the good one to go to here, OSCE Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, as well, um, because it, it's going to it's going to come down to this muddy disinformation battle where Russia deny, deflect, and discredit any information that's put up in in front of them. So a, a lot of moves on the diplomatic front, which we can there's more to more to talk about there, but yes, we're with the focus at the moment is on is on the. Um, uh, on these atrocities that we've seen in Butcher, and I think we're going to see elsewhere. Just to jump in there, one of the things that's been very interesting to see is how satellite images have been used um, to document what Russia's been doing in this conflict. Um, and it, it can be quite incontrovertible evidence. You know, we saw the Mariupol Theatre, for example, with the words child written out in the, on the front of the back of the building, and we saw how badly it had been destroyed. And we've seen in Butcher how bodies you know, appeared during the course of the Russian occupation, um, which just makes it impossible for Russia to deny that these things didn't happen while they were there. Um, This is the sort of evidence that people are already starting to collect for war crimes prosecutions. And I think this is the first major conflict where satellite imagery has really been able to be used like this. One of the companies that you probably see quite a lot in picture caption credits is Maxar Technologies. They provide almost daily satellite um, updates. Um, They provide a lot of pictures of the convoy, for example, that helped us to track that uh, convoy the convoy's movements um, and they've been providing pictures of very very detailed pictures of, of, of Butcher and you can see these bodies appearing over the course of a couple of days while the Russians were there you know it's hard to argue with this evidence no matter what the Kremlin would like to think Let's talk a bit further about um, I mean more of the details of, of these atrocities and, and what happened in Butcher have, have come out. Um, Venetia we published a I mean, incredibly moving and an, an awful thing to read really about what it was like being trapped um, in the in in the town f- for a month uh, from a survivor, a man called Vladislav uh, Kozlovsky. Uh, he was a sommelier in Kiev before the war, and talks about the, the horrors of being trapped in in the town. Um, would you tell us a little bit about this piece? What what does what does Vladislav say? Yes, this is one of a few first-person pieces that's um, in the Telegraph today, um, and he. I mean, it is. It's awful. It's awful reading. He talks about, you know, the Russians coming in and rounding people up, checking their IDs, frisking them, robbing them of things, taking everything they owned. Um, And anyone who had any kind of suggestion, either in, you know, their ID or some kind of tattoo or their clothing that suggested that they were aligned with the Ukrainian military in some sort of way or the resistance, they they were just shot in the back of the head or in the chest. 
Um, and that aligns with the with the evidence that we're seeing in terms of pictures coming out of Butcher these last few days. You know, people with their hands tied behind their back who've been shot at close range. Um, so he talks he talks a lot about that. Um, and we also carry another first person piece talking about um, a woman who managed to flee and also it's the same sort of stories about people's IDs being checked and if it if it has anything suspicious what she talks about someone who had an ID from 2005 which said he was an advisor to the president and he was shot on the spot as well um, lots of stories of civilians trying to flee and being shot while they were doing so um, you know cars with child written on the side cars with white cloth to mark them out as civilians um, that with uh, blood inside sometimes the body's there sometimes not um, we've also heard from a, a family that managed to escape from somewhere near Butcher that was part of a convoy of 12 cars that was fired upon while they were driving along the road um, and this man has told us that he saw his father and his wife being killed in the car with him managed to drive his eight-year-old son to a hospital quickly enough but his father and wife were dead I mean these are horrific stories of Russians just callously openly targeting civilians um, and you know we've spoken about it before but the sort of dehumanizing language of accusing all Ukrainians of being Nazis um, is surely playing a role um, but it's other than that, it's it's hard to explain how an army can commit these sorts of atrocities in such cold blood. Well, I, I can't add to it. I, I, if I may, I'll just reiterate what I said yesterday for those that, that hadn't joined us then. I mean, this is not normal. We should not consider this normal. This is not what just happens in war. This doesn't happen in every war. Mo- most militaries, most of the time, do put a, a lot of effort um, up to up to and including stymieing their own activities or halting operations to to not put themselves in these positions to to protect civilians and not allow them not allow the, the gift to the opposition of of being accused of these sorts of things so so we're, we're not just seeing this as i said yesterday we're not just seeing this because there's smartphones everywhere and there's satellites and what have you this is unusual and needs to be treated as such and needs to be investigated it is being investigated france today has opened three the anti-terrorist prosecutor in france has opened three investigations uh into uh, incidents against french citizens in in the country so i mean th- these efforts are happening um it's it's a tough uphill battle we look at Nuremberg and the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. I mean, they, these take take a long time to bring people to account. Um, and it is a tough battle. But the alternative is just to to accept it. And that and that and it is not acceptable. And I, and I don't I haven't heard anyone suggesting that we just accept it. Um, but but it, I, just to reiterate the point that it, it has to happen. This effort has to happen, it has to start somewhere. Um, and this is not normal activity. The, the Russian army, elements of it, up the chain to, to the leadership and the political leadership, have inculcated a culture where this can happen and and is happening, and and that is not normal. We, sh- we should not just accept it. Um, if there's incontrovertible proof, then there may well be some some line from Russia saying, "Well, okay, bad apples, we'll we'll get rid of them. We've we've all got them, and then they'll immediately spin it onto Iraq and the problems that, that the coalition forces had there and Abu Ghraib and what have you." That's that's what Russia does. It deflects, as I say. But um, this looks this looks systemic, um, which speaks of the moral vacuum at the core of the Russian military, and it is it is not normal. We should not. We should never allow ourselves to think that this is this is just what happens in war when you're 
amongst the people, amongst civilian, amongst the civilian population, when you're throwing heavy metal around, this is bound to happen. No, it's not. No, no, no. it's not bound to happen. Um, this is the Russian army we're seeing here, not 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 a normal army. It's one thing looking at photos and satellite images of the atrocities in Bucha, knowing that in a small city to the north of Kiev, civilians were tied up, shot in the head and left in the street. It's a very different thing to see the place for yourself. Yesterday, I spoke to Daniel Sheridan, the Telegraph's defence and political correspondent, who visited Bucha. Yesterday, myself and the photographer travelled from Lviv to Kiev, which was a really long journey because there were lots of mines on the road so we had to take a different route. The point of coming this way was in order to to go to Butcher, which obviously is a site that has shocked the world because of the atrocities that have been uncovered there since the Russians left the town. It's um, a, a suburb outside of Kiev. I'm sure when I'm saying this everyone's seen the images of the bodies in the street just the sheer destruction and the way buildings have been devastated. Um, and, and basically, that's exactly what we saw today. It was an odd situation to be in because uh, there were lots of unexploded improvised devices and there's mines. So you have to be very careful when you're going there. As such, I mean, the majority of um, civilians have fled anyway. Those that are still there, I think, aren't exactly going out for strolls. There are still. Um, bodies on the side of streets, bodies of Russian soldiers we saw um, it, uh, beside tanks, Ukrainian bodies, the authorities have done kind of what they can um, so far to, to cover them in, in plastic sheets. But, um, you know, you still see their feet sticking out of the sheets and whatnot. So it's pretty, um, it's not a very nice sight. We were also taken to a mass grave um, not the kind of grave that the Russians dug to to hide their crimes, but actually a grave that the priest from a church orchestrated being dug in the um, kind of backgrounds of, of his parish to give um, people uh, a place to be laid to rest because there's no room in the morgue now there's been that's how many deaths there've been that they're running out of space to actually store these bodies so they're now literally digging trenches in the ground and just storing bodies on top of each other coupled with the destruction i mean the sheer devastation really of the town buildings just torched homes torched um it's it's just a, a terrible sight you know, the only people you really see wandering the streets there at the moment are the odd civilian. And it's and it's strange because you can see evidence of how an inhabited it was, you know, a month ago. There's or more. There's billboards um up and uh this I saw a sign for like a local Pilates class and there's coffee shops and well, there was like the remnants of coffee shops. So you, it's it's this strange thing where you see, like, obviously, what was a community, um, and now it's just kind of a blackened shell of of what it once was. And did you manage to talk to many of the locals uh, or, the, or the military? And if so, what did they tell you? So I, I did um, end up speaking to one guy called Sasha. He was a sixty-one-year-old um, who'd come down to the grave to pay respects. 
are you a family member of someone here? And he said, um, he said, well, they're all my family because we're a community and these are my neighbours, my the friends of my neighbours. And then he said, you know, Russia, people say that Ukrainians and Russians, we were brothers. They're not our brothers. They've destroyed us, but they won't win. When this finishes, Ukraine will come out on top. So it was kind of like this rhetoric of sadness that culminated in him demanding that Ukraine win this fight. We also drove to a residential village and um, we encountered this um, guy who'd come back to see if any of his possessions were still intact that he could retrieve. And he was there with a friend and um, he was just explaining that his house was over the road and he pointed at at a house that all all the windows on each house down the street were blown out. But I mean, his house was just a shell, basically. He said that the house had been shelled, so then they moved their belongings um, into the basement of their neighbours opposite the street because of it seemed to be receiving less of the shelling. Um, and then they'd had to make a run for it when um, soldiers basically took over. And he was just saying, you know, we worked our whole life. It's It's been our pride and joy. We raised our family here. You know, we had nice lives. And now all of it's gone literally in his hand he had three bags which is what he like the the belongings he'd been able to retrieve which is probably a lot more than some people have full stop the soldiers that we were with that were showing us around they were just as you can imagine very critical about the russians behavior down the street there was a banner from one house that said here children in russian and they still targeted the house So the soldiers kind of were talking about like the disregard that they have had for children throughout this. And then also just talking about their behavior in general, like there are loads of empty alcohol bottles um, in pretty much like every area that the Russians have been. And um, they were just saying, you know, they just just drink, they steal, um, they've looted, they've raped women, like their behavior has just been barbaric. And so the Ukrainians were, yeah, just extremely, extremely critical of it. So would you say from the conversations you've had with the military that that this this barbarity hasn't affected their morale, really? If anything, they're more they're more determined to win than they would have been. I mean, that that what you've just said, like about affecting morale, that's something I have heard throughout um, my time in Ukraine so far, having spoken to, you know, various um kind of politicians in Lviv to soldiers on the ground here and it's almost like the more abhorrent the behavior of the russians becomes the more it simply seems to unite ukrainians i interviewed a soldier who's in mariupol he was saying basically the ukrainians won't give up this fight because they have something to fight for which is their country and their existence but the Russians don't have anything to fight for. They've come into this blindly. They don't have an objective to achieve, whereas the Ukrainians do. And they have their very existence that needs to be preserved. And so he just said, like, we will never give in to them because we believe so much in the cause that we're fighting for. You mentioned earlier when you were going through Butcher that what struck you was the sort of potentially the other things so the, the presence of quite a few dogs and, and the silence um is is it hard doing this sort of reporting and how do you sort of get through it it isn't pleasant um 
I don't I've read books about people that like thrive on war reporting. They kind of get like adrenaline hit from it. And I certainly don't. I don't particularly like aggression. I don't like seeing bloodied bodies. I don't, you know, I don't like watching programs on TV about that kind of stuff. So, um, but I think that war is important and crime should be documented. And therefore I'm interested in, in reporting on it. But I mean, yeah, I saw so many dead bodies today and I didn't enjoy it, particularly when we went to this mass grave. I just felt kind of sad and um, I suppose like reflective. You're seeing dead bodies, but then you're also seeing like a pink flip flop that's somehow made its way into the grave. And I presume it maybe fell off a woman when she was being put into that grave. And um you know, not everyone was covered in plastic bags. Some were just buried with sand. So there was a hand in a, like, sweatshirt sticking out. And, you know, the priest that I was speaking to said that, um, I was like, who is in here? And he said, you know, there's 60 people and there are children as well among them. And that just, obviously, you know, children are so innocent. It's It's just unfair. So, yeah, I from a personal point of view it is it's sad um and I just want to be respectful as well because I'm staring down on people's graves like even if it's not it's not the grave that they their family will want permanently you you still must show respect to where their their final place of rest currently is it it, it isn't it's not very nice no the destruction and the aftermath of what's coming out in where I've been today is is probably just going to be repeated throughout the country someone tweeted it today that um god knows what the destruction will be like in Mariupol when the Russians finally leave that's if they do manage if they do get pushed out you know who knows um what's obviously we all hope that they do but being realistic like who knows what's going to happen what we've seen over the weekend has basically like reverberated across the world it's shocked everyone and it's probably only the tip of the iceberg there have been also continuing protests in in russia despite all the crackdowns um venetia do you want to speak about this a bit what's been happening Yes, we've we've seen really very few Russian protests since the beginning of the war. You know, the Kremlin was very quick to bring in legislation that made the penalty for any sorts of protest or dissent so heavy as to be um, a, a massive deterrent. And there were there were very few protests, frankly, in Russia in the last few years, anyway. Um, but now you face up to 15 years in prison for treason, even just for saying the word war or, frankly, for holding up a blank piece of paper. Those are two concrete examples that we've seen in recent weeks. Um, but this morning, a, uh, a very brave Russian artist on his own, or with someone taking photographs of him as well, went around Moscow, four different places, including in front of the Kremlin. And he, he lay down and he staged... Um, he staged a photograph of a dead person from from Butcher. He essentially lay down. He was wearing a brown jacket like we've seen on a man in some of the pictures from Butcher. He um, had his hands tied behind his back with a bit of white cloth and he and he lay there. Um, and it's it's quite powerful. It's quite evocative. He called his he called it a performance, Moscow Butcher. 
Um, and it's really just to draw attention to his fellow Russians of what is happening. And, and it also, frankly, gives us a sign that some Russians do know what is happening. You know, there's been such an information blackout over the last few weeks um, that it's hard to know how much of the reality of what's going on in Ukraine and all the international reporting that we feel bombarded with. That is not the case in Russia. You know, they are they are seeing much, much less of this. And you have to know which telegram channels to go to or who to chat to on Signal or what VPN to use to access what information. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that we saw that. And we've also seen from a, um, a feminist group, they've started placing wooden crosses um, to mark graves around the country with the words Mariupol 5000 written on them, obviously a reference to the more than 5000 people that have been killed in Mariupol so far. So it's interesting the way some brave Russian activists are finding creative ways to to show to show the world that they they care and that they're listening and also to remind fellow Russians that you can't pretend this isn't happening. This is happening. And one more thing I think to bring into this update is what's happening in Europe. Um, we know that the Polish Prime Minister has said that Germany is the main roadblock on, on sanctions, on new sanctions. And these are the sanctions that the EU is exploring, um, or even preparing to hit Moscow with tomorrow. Um, Venetia or Dom, would you, would you come in on this? What's, what, why, why is Germany, why is Germany, Germany dragging its heels? And what is, do, we, do we have any sense of what the EU is preparing? Yeah, so we know that there's going to be a couple of sort of EUE type meetings this week. The foreign ministers are meeting tomorrow. Um, Truss is set to speak later. We know that basically what's probably going to be agreed in the next few days is some sort of ban on Russian coal imports. And this is the beginning of tackling Europe's reliance on Russian energy sources. Um, coal is the least controversial because it makes up the smallest percentage of what is used in Europe. Um, Poland produces a lot of coal, so that's an easy alternative source. Um, we saw Macron yesterday coming out in support of that Oil would be the next one. That's more controversial. It's used more heavily. And gas, obviously, is the biggest one, particularly for countries like Germany that rely on it for their very significant um, industrial sector. Um, and they have pushed back against the idea of blocking gas exports, saying that you know it will hurt us more than it will hurt Russia. I don't know if that's true. I don't know where you where you fall on that sort of argument. But so what we're looking at immediately in the in the short term is is a, a ban on coal imports. Um, some other things being discussed as well is sort of access of Russian goods by land and sea into the bloc, and also um, continuing to crack down on bank transactions involving Russian banks. So that's what we're likely to see agreed in the next few weeks. But it is still controversial, and there will be more. More arguments to come, particularly when it comes to the energy sector. Yeah, and I just think it's worth saying that um, the, the phrases that, that various countries are, are dragging their heels or coming coming to the party slowly um, is, is possibly a little unfair. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, these are unprecedented times. The world has had enough warnings about Russia, but finally, sort of seems to be doing something about uh, about the threat and about Putin and the regime and what it what it's just been yeah what it's been doing. Um, and so these are these are big seismic changes with a huge amount of domestic politics to to wade through. Um, if we want to have the the united front against Russia that that we do, then people, politicians uh, in every country have have to take their people with them. And so some uh, issues are going to be much more tricky uh, in some countries than than in others. So 
I think as long as we, as long as the, the noises are are correct, um, and you know, we're talking Germany here, Nord Stream two, that was a big call. So, I think the 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 sense of direction is is correct. Some people are going at a different tempo. I think we have to give them a little bit of leeway there. It'll be very interesting to see if this united front stands up to any kind of unified action through the UN um, and the, the veto power, obviously, in the, uh, the, the, that Russia has and China has well, and the P5 nations have in the Security Council for anything that we try to do through, through the UN. But I think when it comes to international politics of, of, this, of this seismic shift now in global politics, um, with the 24-hour news cycle, it's very easy to say, crikey, you know, Schultz hasn't said anything yet. He, he had the information six hours ago. Macron made his speech. Yeah, we've got to give these guys a little bit of leeway. I'm not I'm not advocating the status quo or a, you know, a nice bureaucratic fudge and we'll all do it after lunch. I'm not advocating that at all. I'm just saying that there's there's domestic pressures that, that might not be immediately apparent um, to 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 everyone else around around the around the globe. But I think we're going in the right direction. The pressure needs to be kept on. Just that sort of nice, that firm, the best man's hand in the in the groom's back, the reluctant groom's back. That that gentle pressure all the time. Just keep going in the right direction, um, and we will we will achieve results. Kanisha, did you did you want to come in? Yeah, I did. Um, I just I love I love the image of the, the hand at the at the groom's back. Um, I think it's a really I think Don makes a really good point, and you know particularly when when we talk about Germany, um, the change the the changes that Germany has has brought into effect in the last month alone are pretty extraordinary actually when you think about it what we are kind of looking at is the undoing of almost the entirety of Merkel's legacy you know Nord Stream 2 the idea of building a a, a proper relationship with with Russia and that would be the way to sort of bring them further into the fold of democracy and human rights and western liberal values Um, all of that is is falling apart so quickly it actually boggles the mind Um, I think Schultz has done a pretty good job of trying to figure out a way through it. This is not his natural position either. I don't think anyone could have predicted a couple of months ago that these are the sorts of decisions that he'll be making faced with these choices. Um, But he has made them and he is trying to bring the German people along with him. You know, Germany depends so much more on gas, Russian gas, than we do. I wonder what the discussion would be like here if that was... Um, and you know, a decision that we were having to be making. Um, so I think I think it's a really good point, and I think it's good to appreciate, and particularly when it comes to Germany. I think it's it's very interesting, really, how much has changed in the last few months when you think about it. Well, thank you both of you. Um, I've just got a few um, questions from from listeners. Let's have some questions. Uh, I've got I've just got two. I think one probably Dom's lined lined up for better. What's the? And I think this is a, a sort of it's a tactical question, but I think speaks to it speaks to something we've been seeing across the war. The question is, what's the cost of a tank versus the cost of a tank killing rocket or missile? So I, I think what the questioner is getting at here is the, in, in a way, how, how much is both, are both, sides, are both sides losing? If Russia, we've seen so many tanks and armoured vehicles knocked out, and to what extent, in a, from a supply point of view, is, is that far worse than, or far more costly than using up lots of tank killing rockets? Yeah, so so literally on the economics, um, uh, so an end law, uh, next generation light anti tank weapon, the the Anglo Swedish uh, anti tank weapon costs about about twenty grand, twenty twenty thousand um, pounds ish. Uh, javelin, US javelin, uh, roughly the same, thirty thousand dollars, something like that. Are these single use, Dom? Sorry, very, are these single use, or they, you can use yeah, them again? Or this? Okay, right. 
Yeah, well, no, they are. And in, interestingly, so there were some photos, again, got to be careful about where you take your information. Photos yesterday from um, from the Donbass, from from the Russian separatist areas, showing these, uh, they'd, they'd discovered a cache of N-laws and haha, we've stolen it off the uh, off the Ukrainians. They're all been fired. I mean, N-laws are a, a far and forget. You, you well, fire in and run as fast as you can. So once the tube's empty, you can't, you don't just reload it and and, and pop another one off it's, it's done so you fire it you drop it on the ground and, and leg it same with javelin and you can see these things um you can tell when the far the firing mechanism has gone because the well firstly an end or there's nothing left in the tube um both of them but you can see the the, the various uh, arming switches in different positions and so on and so forth so so yeah they, they are fire and forget um and i mean so they are they are brilliant one trick ponies they, they've got one job and they do it brilliantly, and and that that is it. Now, a, a tank is many, many, many multiples more expensive. You've, you've got the the vehicle itself, then you've got to drape it in a load of um, uh, explosive reactive armor. Uh, possibly that's what these big sort of shoebox type things are. You see on the Russian on the Russian tanks, they are they are they are small bombs. Basically, they are designed to to explode. If a round comes towards the tank or hits the tank, these these boxes will explode to, to physically push it away. That's what they're, they're designed to do very crudely um but you've also got sighting systems and you've got thermal designator or thermal images laser designators you've got all sorts of other bits and bobs so the price of a tank is is, is a lot now you know ar- armies have quite a few of these things dotted around the place of various vintages and so on and so forth so the the, the, the actual finance of it is, is possibly less serious unless you're in a, a proper sort of five or six year plus war when you have to turn your whole state machinery to, to cranking these things out but in terms of in terms of what they are, then as I said, the the, the, the Enlaws and Javelins and the other similar anti tank missiles are brilliant one trick ponies. Um, and so there's a lot of people saying, right, the, the tank has had its day. There's no point being in a tank these days. You're just asking for um, asking to be knocked out by a by a drone or, or what have you. And it's not it's not exactly the case because um, tanks can do a lot more than just act as mobile pillboxes for example they yeah they they do they are applicable in in most um operations of war and whilst they are they can be very limited they're they're very heavy um so there's only the main armor is only at the front if you if you imagine you're standing on the on the top of a tank turret and you you hold your arms out in front of you at a roughly 60 degree angle so from sort of uh, 10 o'clock through to two o'clock that that sort of thing that's where the armor is on the turret and on the front of the vehicle and, and the, the sides of the vehicle but only at the very front because that's the bit that you generally charge at the enemy so the side the, the rear the the sides the belly and the and the the top the back of the turret is very very vulnerable and that's why javelin and enlaw fly over it and fire down uh, or off-route anti-tank mines are buried and blast up through the belly because the the steel plate there is only a couple of inches thick so tanks can be very vulnerable but they are hugely versatile if you've got one of those parked in your street you've got a problem um and i mean in the in the old armored in the armor corps that I used to be a part of there was there's an old expression that tanks were like dinner jackets and you don't need a gin, dinner jacket every day but when you do need one only a dinner jacket will do and it's pretty similar there so so don't write off the tank it's not had its day yet but um equally these uh, the new anti-tank weapons are are phenomenal they, they've got one job to do and they just do it brilliantly thanks very much dom and final question um We've we've talked a lot about Belarus as a sort of it, Belarus comes into the answers that we give about various questions about this conflict, um, 
and we haven't really sort of addressed it. I mean, and I don't, I don't suggest we do it now, but we haven't really addressed Belarus uh, on its own and on its own terms. Um, but just, just, just for today, um, Belarusian. I mean, we talked about it. Finisher, I think you mentioned it last week. Sabotage of the railway lines, the resupply lines for the Russian forces was a was a factor in in Russia's retreat and repositioning. Can we? Can we just explore that? How, how big a factor has the lack of support from the Belarusian army, the, uh, the attacks from, from partisans and the sabotage, how big a factor has that been in Russia's retreat? I'm not sure we can call it really a, ta- a factor in Russia's retreat, but I, I think there are two very interesting things to say about Belarus's role in all of this. Maybe three. I mean, one, Lukashenko is essentially um, Putin's puppet now. Um, he's we, we suspected that he was basically in his back pocket after um, Moscow helped him to crack down on widespread protests um, that nearly unseated him. Um, but now we know it for sure. Belarus has just been a staging post, basically, for, for Russia to invade Ukraine from the north. Um, what will be interesting will be to see whether Russia pulls out those... Um, tens of thousands of troops that went there. Uh, you may remember that there were a lot of military drills ahead of the invasion. Um, we will be inter- it will be interesting to see whether those troops pull back out again because if they don't, that suggests that Belarus is effectively a sort of satellite state of Russia, which you might be able to argue it is already. That has quite significant knock-on implications for the Baltics, um, for Finland, Norway, Sweden. That part of Europe will be very worried if Russia continues to have a permanent heightened military presence in Belarus. That definitely changes the security balance in that region and that's something that we've seen as probably, you know, to do with um, why the Baltics have asked for a bolstered NATO presence, you know, in Lithuania and Latvia, and why Finland is considering joining NATO. You know, it really changes things there. And then the other factor, as you mentioned, is is the resistance within Belarus. You know, we've We've heard not much about the Belarusian resistance since the attention on the protests died down, but we know that people have continued to try to push back against Lukashenko's regime. And the example that you mentioned, that wonderful story that we did about the sabotage of the railway lines, um, that's, just, that's, just, that's just one example, you know. And th- there are other sort of smaller examples going on, but it's, it hasn't been a major factor. Lukashenko's regime has cracked down very hard on any kind of resistance or dissent or sabotage that he's come across. Um, and you have to be pretty brave to go up against these regimes. But we do see small examples, and it'll be interesting to continue to watch it. Dom, do you want to come in, in on that at all, or shall we hear both of our speakers' final thoughts for the week ahead? Well, I'll just I'll, I'll offer this as my final thought, if, that, if that's okay. Uh, yes, if Russia stays in Belarus, Russian forces remain in Belarus, that, that would be very problematic. And the reason it, uh, it might not be immediately apparent why they'd want to do so is have a look at Kaliningrad. So Kaliningrad is the, the exclave, that little lump of land between Poland and Lithuania um, bordering the Baltic Sea that is, that is part of Russia. But it's completely cut off by by land from um, from well, it's surrounded by NATO basically, and it's cut off from Belarus, cut off from Russia, uh, and that the area there between Belarus, it's about fifty k's from the border of Belarus to the border of Kaliningrad. That 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 is the Polish Lithuanian border. That area there is called the Savalki Gap. Um, apologies for my for my pronunciation, but the Savalki Gap, and that area is always thought to be very vulnerable. If there was ever a flare up between Russia and uh, NATO, that would inevitably or seemingly now inevitably involve belarus that area would come under incredible pressure because that's the only way that kaliningrad could be reinforced by by road so if russian forces remain in belarus it'd be really interesting to see if they position themselves to the west 
in the northwest of the country over near near the Sabalki Gap around there to the west of Minsk. Um, so yeah, just just one one thing to keep an eye on. There's very not one. Just add that to the list of these little little places dotted around the world that you, you know, may not have heard of before, but it could be could could be the, the the flashpoints to look out for. So that'd be my my area to watch in Belarus or Russian forces. Thanks. Vinisha, would you like the, the final word for today? I think just for the week ahead, it will be key to watch a what starts to come out of Mariupol, which I know we've been saying is on the verge of falling for a while now, but I think might actually be on the verge of falling now. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens there. We already saw a pro-Russian party staging a mayoral election. So they're already starting to sort of do some of the institutional stuff that they like to do to paper over their occupation. Um, and to keep an eye on the East because things could move quite quickly there. Um, you know, the Ukrainian army is tired as well. It's been a long few weeks of fighting for, for both sides. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens there and how things change in the coming week. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>